I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Scott, we got some big news to share at the end of this opus, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll just leave it at that for now. So be sure to uh, stick around all the way to the end of this opus of Triloquy. Uh, before we uh, get started, Scott, last week, uh, I didn't really have a chance to uh, congratulate you and thank you for this new reggae-inspired um, theme. I mean, obviously, we chose it to go along with the 420 opus last uh, week, but what was uh, sort of your process in, in putting that together? I was learning new software at the same time. So mm -hmm. there were plenty of evenings where I was sat down here for four or five hours hunched over my keyboard, learning the new software to be able to record all that. Mm -hmm. And you sent a couple tracks. I think you sent an Ariana Grande track and something else is just a, sort of an inspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, can, the, I can tell you too, they, you know, they call that, that feel that reggae has, they call that the bubble, you know, when you get on oh, and, you're, okay. and you're, you're sort of riding that scoot feel yeah. that it's got, that's hard. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'll, I'll shout out uh, John Del Vento, who was featured uh, in the 420 opus of Triloquy. You know, some of the things he was talking about was Ableton, which is what uh, you use. Um, being a part of music education and uh, and a right. part of the way that that we learn how to put all this stuff together. I mean, Scott, what if I, I guess Ableton wasn't invented when you were in school, but <laughs> 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 but 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 what if that or what if you know you could be a part in teaching youngsters how to use that, you know, and giving them a, a leg up on whatever they wanted to do musically or otherwise. I would love that because I've been missing teaching. I taught as an adjunct for four years. Yeah. And I was teaching kids how to use pro that kids, these young students, these young adults, I was teaching them how to use pro tools, but I taught them how to edit on tape first. Wow. And I couldn't begin to, I, I know nothing about hardly playing a tape, much less editing on one. So yeah. So then they get a respect and an appreciation for it, but I miss that teaching component. And, you know, we talked about uh, putting together maybe some sort of a camp for the Jennings school. Yeah. Uh, that is on a previous opus. I forget which one. It's in the early days, like um, 12 or something. But um, yeah, so, something like that would be just really rewarding, I think. And speaking of, you know, teaching kids and camps, uh, today's guest, his name is Amari Ford. He lives down in Oklahoma. We connected at the past Sphinx uh, conference uh, back in February 2020. You know, Scott, when we were allowed to be socially, you Close. know, together and all of that sort of thing. Um, and he told me about um, a project he was putting together, a camp for this summer uh, for kids to sort of uh, give them a leg up on music education and, and becoming uh, instrumentalists. Now, of course... Um, um, you know, we we recorded just at the beginning. My conversation with Amari took place just at the beginning of this health crisis. So now, you know, he's realized that he's had to uh, cancel uh, the, the camp, but you know, his website, um, is still up. And I, I decided that we should go ahead and still air, uh, this opus of Triloquy because, you know, his journey and his perspective on music education could really, uh, uh, be really beneficial for folks to be thinking about as we consider what it's going to look like when schools open back up and, and the way we need to shift music education. You know, again, as we were talking with uh, John Del Vento last week, I was going to say there's a little synergy there because John was talking about upgrading the way that kids are initiated into music courses of study. You know, let's modernize this by playing something that they recognize rather than Frere Jaca or whatever. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's a conversation that's happening everywhere. Um, uh, as, as we tape this, Scott, later this week, I'm actually going to be uh, joining Katie and Delaney on the Classically Black podcast. And something that they're doing uh, that we're going to explore uh, in that episode of their podcast is just that, tying in rap music, tying in hip hop with classical as a means of um, education. So I, I'm still, um, you know, toying with which two rap tunes I'm going to bring in. They asked <laughs> me to uh, bring two because, you know, there are connections to be made everywhere. Um, you know, uh, these days, uh, earlier today, I was listening to a lot of Naughty by Nature. And even, and even if you go to their biggest hits, you know, OPP, there's piano throughout that. And I can't wait to, um, you know, uh, get in front of my keyboard and explore that. Uh, a little bit more, you know, really important to uh, recognize that those sounds are in hip hop. I really think that um, Steely Dan got sort of a boost from some of the sampling that has happened of some of their tracks. Oh yeah, which uh, yeah you 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 know better than I do which I, tune of their that was sampled. Black cow, black cow, that's it. And, you know, then there's a whole other leg of study to add in there, legal, you know, so that you, if you are sampling somebody else's work, <laughs> yeah, yeah, make sure you're in the clear. Yeah, a whole, uh, a whole nother uh, uh, league, uh, league of study there, the, the, the music business. I actually took a, a legal class in undergrad, a music business class. Um, but uh, but one, one tune that I know I'm going to bring in to Katie and Delaney and that I wanted to kind of um, bring up a little bit today as, as we're getting into this conversation with Amari is a tune called Emotionless by Drake. So, you know, the way in which I'm going to frame this on Classically Black and just to preview it here is the idea that, A, it's based on a, uh, well, it samples a, a tune called Emotions by uh, Mariah Carey. And, um, you know, that is sort of reminiscent of the gospel and spiritual uh, tradition mm -hmm. and how that is just as much classical as anything else. So how, you know, how this study relating hip hop and other genres to music education, you know, just broadens everything up intrinsically. And, you know, uh, and the, the other level, the next level of this music is that it comes with all of these really poetic words. And I know, Scott, you pride yourself in, um, in your writing 
and, and and when I you know read the lyrics to this tune, I just can't help but to feel something. You know how Drake talks about leaving me in limbo to question what I believe, leaving me to ask what's their motive in making peace. Leaving me to not trust anybody I meet. Leaving me to ask, is there anybody like me? I have to tell you, I gotta, I gotta read the the lyrics anyway, because my hearing is so bad. <laughs> Everything just goes past me in a lot of these rap songs. But not that one by Drake, you know. If you listen, I think he's being pretty. <laughs> I think he's being pretty clear there. Mm. Um, but so in our, um, so as we transition into um, our conversation with uh, Amari Ford, you know, he actually brings up a uh, a rap tune as well. There's a rapper out there. His name is J Cole, and one of his recent hits uh, was a tune called uh, "Middle Child." And in it, you can hear the sort of um, you know reminiscences of the of the black marching band and and the way those horns sound and uh in this in this opus you'll hear how um he uh you know used that song as a way of of uh engaging his students something they wanted to do so i thought we might uh listen to just a little bit of that as we transition into my conversation with mr amari ford Amari Ford, such a pleasure to have you here on Triloquy. Thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me. You know, you have such a beautifully unique name. I love the name Amari. Where, where, where does that name come from? Um, it's actually my mother's name spelled backwards. So my name is A-M apostrophe R-E. Her name is Irma, E-R-M-A. Um, my mom had a pretty difficult pregnancy, and so she wasn't sure that, like, she would live beyond the pregnancy, but wanted something that, like, I could remember her by, um, so she gave me her name. Oh, my goodness, and, and your mother is still living, right? Yeah. I- I'm sure the two of you have such a close relationship. I mean, you're, you're closely related in name, I'm sure, <laughs> personally as well. You know... We're working on it. We're really alike. So okay. Yep. <laughs> you know, we're too much alike, and then we just have to kind of have some space. But yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's cool. I, I wonder if your mom is a musician at all. Did did, did she play a role in, in your introduction to music? Uh, sort of like. So my grandfather was a pastor. Amen. Um, and had thirteen kids and. You know, when you're a pastor, you got to have somebody to sing before you preach. And okay. <laughs> so the kids would sing. <laughs> okay. So they had like a whole group and wrote songs and all of that stuff. So it's, it's interesting how the story for so many black folk, no matter what corner of music we go into, how the origins are, are, are there in church. Do, do you see that um, uh, being sustained in your experience? Are, are seven, eight year olds, four or five year olds, for that matter, being introduced to music through the church for, you know, based on the kids that you come into contact with? Um, I don't think in the same way, mm-hmm. because like people my age who have kids aren't going either they're not going to church or if they are they're not always going to traditional black churches Mm -hmm. and getting like that black church experience 
um, which that is like a whole nother conversation. Right, about, right. Yeah, relevancy and yeah, a whole bunch of other stuff. But so the short answer is no. <laughs> I don't I don't really see it as much. Yeah, and, and we're gonna get into uh, some of the kids that you do teach and the um and the summer camp. Um, initiative that that uh, you have going. Excited to talk about that. But, you know, I kind of just wanted to um, check in as far as your personal situation. So as we're um, as we're taping this, you know, we're kind of in the heat of this uh, COVID-19, this corona um, virus crisis with um, with lockdowns and, and everything. How, how has this impacted you personally? Yeah, um, I'm still like sort of working through it. I deal with anxiety. And so for the most part, I've been able to like block it out. But Thursday, um, just like a couple days ago, my school, we were going on a trip to Chicago. I was just going to chaperone with the high school and that trip got canceled. Then there were just all of these cancellations. And so it really started to hit me like, okay, this is a real thing. Um, you know, needed to kind of deal with it. Are, uh, is, um, is school in session for you still or has school been canceled as, as of yet? So, yeah, the State Board of Education met yesterday and canceled school for all Oklahoma schools through April 5th, I think. Um, so nobody is having school and there's like no expectation of doing like online teaching or anything like that. Um, and they've suspended like all activities, concerts, all sorts of things that might involve students. And, I, and I'm sure you had, you know, a, a music teacher has plenty to do at all times. I'm sure there were concerts you were prepping for and all sorts of all sorts of things. Yeah, like we just finished contest a couple weeks ago. So okay. we were sort of in a slow period, but we do grow. We were supposed to have a chamber music festival on April 4th. Oh, my um, goodness. So, yeah, that's out. Well, how did the um, kids do at contest, by the way? Uh, my kids, they did well. Um, we got twos on stage and then one in sight reading. Okay. And, and of course, for folks who don't know, um, you know, most music contests are, around the country are, are rated from one to five, with one being the best um, and, and five being the not-so-best. Um, so, yeah, a two is an excellent rating, I think is the word. So congratulations yeah. on those excellent ratings. Thank you. And then, um, and I imagine that you... You know, yourself, you know, you have performance things, you know, professional things that uh, were on the horizon for you that that have maybe been canceled or postponed at this point. Yeah, I play in a community orchestra and we're going to do Mozart's Requiem uh, in April. But like the school that we rehearse at is closed. Um, So we just got an email yesterday to say that they've moved that to the fall. Um, and that's kind of morose in itself, you know, Mozart's Requiem and the story behind, you know, that, you know, him, him doing as much as of that as he could on his deathbed and what's going on now is kind of, it's kind of eerie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let, let's go ahead and get um, more uh, specifically uh, into you. So uh, w- one of the big things that uh, I've been exploring lately is the fact that um, music education, the pathways are a little rigid. So even at the best of, um, inst- I shouldn't say the best, but even at the most notable of uh, music institutions and conservatories, uh, folks will graduate and not really know or, or have a way toward that next step. Did, did, did you find that to be the case for you after you graduated from music school? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was kind of crazy. Um, 
Remind so me where you went to school first, sorry. Yeah, I went to the University of Central Oklahoma mm. for my undergraduate degree. Um, started out as music ed, but like at the last second, I had to switch to performance. Um, I failed this class and not because I didn't know the <laughs> work. It was just that this professor would assign so much reading and then I get to class and she wasn't talking about it. So I just, you know, in my 20s, done, said I'm not doing this no more. And then I was like two points away from passing the class. Um, and I could have come back to take the class, but all I had was that class and then student teaching. So it'd be like two extra semesters. Right, right. So I switched to performance, put together a senior recital, um, and then went to UNC Greensboro to get a master's degree in composition. Um, then, yeah, like once I graduated with my master's, I was looking for work, trying to like teach, um, in the school district or, or just anywhere. Um, but I couldn't find like any sort of job. I was applying to be like a administrative assistant, teacher's assistant, substitute, all of the things. It was just very difficult. Um, so I ended up coming back to Oklahoma. Um, what, what, what is your response to um, folks who may, you know, have said to you, well, you just should have worked a little bit harder in that music education class uh, back in your undergrad. What, what, what would have made the difference for you in that situation specifically? Um, I think that, like, if I had done a little bit more work, yeah, I would have passed the class and graduated earlier. But also, I think that the experiences that I had past that class... Um, were so valuable to me. Like if I had gotten that music education degree, there's a good chance that I would have started teaching right away instead of going to graduate school for composition. Yeah, and I was actually um, going to uh, ask about that. Like, you know, it, it's funny how things just happen so serendipitously. Um, yeah. It doesn't sound like you, you know, regret or would change the way uh, things sort of panned out. But, but how did... Um, getting that degree in performance, getting a master's in composition, and then going back into music education anyway impact the way you execute that job of teaching kids? Um, and that's the thing, like, although I wasn't teaching in the classroom, I was still, like, teaching and working with kids. I ran a summer program uh, both in Oklahoma City and in Greensboro um, and an after-school program in Greensboro, and I was, like, still still teaching, just not in a classroom. Mm. And so I think that like coming back to sort of finish and get like certified completely, I felt like I had the experience that I needed. Like I missed out on student teaching, but like I still had like real life experiences. Um, and people will say that, you know, student teaching is that real life experience. But, you know, my challenge, you know, uh, s similar to you, you know, I, I started music education. I went four years through it. And at the end of my uh, fourth year, um, you know, decided to switch over to uh, performance, you know, not necessarily because I failed a class, but I just never wanted to deal with middle schoolers. So that, <laughs> that, yeah. that, that was that, that that was my thing. Um, right. But, you know, student teaching. You know, for me, was a was a really hard thing to tackle because you know it's basically working a full time job for free, right? Yeah, and I I know a lot of people talk about just like the impact that that has on them, like trying to work a full time job, but then those of us who actually need to work to live uh, while we're in school and trying to juggle those things can be 
can be difficult. So I guess I'm lucky in the fact that like my real world experience or my field experience like paid me while I was while I was doing it. How would you, you know, if it were up to you, how would you change that pathway uh, specifically, you know, from from music education classroom to practicum to job? How, how, how would you shape that transition for future uh, music teachers in a more effective way? Because, again, it's hard to do the full-time work of that practicum of doing that student teaching while taking care of yourself at the same time. Yeah, I don't know. That's a... Uh... That's a good question, because um, obviously, like the practicum is really important. But mm-hmm. um, and you, I think if you shorten the day, then there's like things that you miss um, while you're in the practicum that you should get. Um, I don't know. Maybe there could be like some exploration of certain days that you're doing the practicum so that you can work if you need to, or mm-hmm. even, you know, that colleges can come up with like a scholarship that can give you a stipend while you're doing the practicum. And yeah, m- money is money is always the challenge, as we'll uh, get to with, with your summer camp. Uh, right. uh, take, take me to uh, the first day you got in front of that classroom. So you have a performance degree, you have your composition degree, you've gone through your certifications and, and all those sort of things. What were some of your um, immediate uh, challenges? I, I know, uh, you know, as, as we've said, money is always a challenge, but did you find in-classroom uh, challenges uh, on, on, you know, as you transition into your, your role as a teacher? Yeah, um, so my very first job was doing a long-term sub at a private Catholic school. Mm. Um, and so that was actually like really easy. My real first day with that, I would say, was when I taught orchestra and band that fall. Um, I taught at a Title I school and yeah, I had all of these plans and then the kids showed up and I quickly realized that as a school, we didn't have the stuff in place to like really help the kids be structured um, and to support the teachers in the classroom. So, And for people who don't know, what is a Title I school? Yeah, Title I school is a school that is comprised of students that there's a percentage of them that are on free and reduced lunch. But our school, I think it was like 99%. Um, So their Title I school is going to be like low SES or low... Uh, socioeconomic status um yeah yeah it, it always boils down to to money i mean what 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 are some yeah. of the uh, i'm wondering what are some of the you know real life in school in classroom challenges attached to money i mean are and and especially as it compares to your being a sub at that uh catholic school i mean did, right. did you just not have access to instruments to music what what was the story yeah, at my school also is a pretty small school, so there weren't a lot of options for kids to do things. So I ended up um, having really large classes, but also not enough instruments um, for all of the kids to learn. And so we were doing like this share thing where, you know, there's an eighth grade who plays eighth grader who plays trumpet and they can take it home, but like the seventh and sixth grader who also use that same trumpet don't get to take the instrument home because we don't have enough. 
what what uh-huh. what is the value of of music education? You know, for, for these kids, because I imagine you know if the kids are sharing an instrument, they come from families who can't necessarily get them an instrument of their own. Right. What what is what what is the value of of music education? You know, for these folks just trying to put food on the table at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that like. In that particular community, there is some value because of like the rich history that both that middle school and the high school connected have. Um, just as of late, there hasn't been a lot of stability um, in those schools with those programs. And so like there's definitely value in the community, but not necessarily with the students because like the current students, because it's not something that they've seen a whole lot of. Mm. Um, and then also they, what they have seen is marching band. And so when I'm like, hey, you know, let's learn to read these notes. It's like, well, we don't want that, Mr. Ford. We want to put on these uniforms and like march in this parade. <laughs> so, how do you, um, so, so how do you deal with that? You know, because they would very much be engaged by that, you know, black marching band experience that I think you're yeah. describing. But, you know, it sounds like you have a different idea for them. Well, I I think that in general, like music educators do a disservice to say, oh, only this style of music is valid. Mm. Um, and I mean, I didn't do a super great job last year, but I did like we did march in a parade um, and I like wrote out some stuff for them to play. Some of them learned to read and then some of them like learned it by ear. They wrote in the notes. Um, and I mean, I wasn't. I wanted them to learn in the way that they could learn. And I think that had I been there for longer, I definitely would have had some time to kind of work through some of those kinks. But see, I just tried to balance um, and make learning engaging for them or fun for them. And then try to get them to learn like we did Middle Child by J. Cole. Okay. I knew that was a song that they really liked, so let me write these notes. And then, you know, that was sort of a motivation for them to learn to read because we can play Middle Child. Yeah, Middle Child uh, by, by J. Cole. And, and of course, you know, when it comes to, you know, music education and classical music, you know, the tradition has been looking down on hip hop and, and hip hop artists. But but obviously that was a, a way for you to really reach these kids and, and to engage them through uh, through music education. Right. Um, and, you know, I've just music education should be relevant. We don't have to learn about people that are old, white and white and dead. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they wrote some good music, but like there are people who are alive who are making music that is also good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even at the school that I teach at now, which the demographic is like almost completely flipped, um, I challenged them. So we had like a music calendar and every morning they came in, I would play a song from like a different genre of music. And like on Fridays we did HBCU bands because it was the fall and marching band season. So, oh, so you're um, not at this Title I school anymore? Yeah, I'm at a different school now. Oh, okay, so so what are the differences between that school and the, and the school that you work at now as, as far as these things we're talking about, the challenges, the issues? Yeah, so I switched districts. And so the district that I teach in now is much more affluent a lot more white, um, but 
like the things with instruments. Well, I have a number of cellos and basses. I have so many that we can send instruments home with students who can't afford to rent one. So they can take a school instrument home, keep it there and practice, and then also have an instrument that they play at school. Was it hard um, for you to leave um, the kids behind at that Title I school? Because, you know, with limited resources comes, you know, limited human resources, li limited professionals to really engage these kids in, in, in a way that's meaningful. Yeah, it was difficult um, because in a way I felt like I was leaving and betraying my people. And so, yeah, it was difficult, but like that environment, not necessarily the kids, but like there were adults on like a varying degree of levels that also contributed a whole lot more to this decision. Ah, um, so, so maybe I, like, and I, I won't ask you to throw anyone under the bus specifically, but colleagues or more parents? I'm talking colleagues, I'm talking about administration and not like school administration, but like district administration. Oh my goodness. Um, so this is like with that particular school district, an issue that they are starting to work through, it's gonna take a while to kind of get rid of old systems, put in some new systems and get that thing to work. So yeah, and, and yeah that's overall that, it just wasn't good for me personally, so I like I had to do it. And and that's a conversation that I don't feel like folks really dive into often enough. You know, we, we talk about um, parental support, community support of music programs, but that um, that collegial, if that's a word, that collegial uh, support of music programs um, is something that that gets overlooked. You know, if, if you could if you could talk to the non music teachers, the the school administrators, folks working at the boards of education, what what would you tell them as far as really being that support system for those music educators? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can only we can only perform so many miracles, and in this case, like it, the support looks like money. It looks like mm. funding, and you at least pretending like you want to have like these options for our students, but also realizing the value that that music and the arts bring to students. Um, you know, there are all of these studies that talk about what music and the arts do to the brain. And recently, Texas Music Educators Association has put out like some numbers about how their students score on the SAT. Um, like students who make all state in comparison to like the state and the national average. Mm -hmm. um, and it's significantly higher, like people who made all state score significantly higher on that test. Yeah, and, so, and, and yet driving that point is so important. It's one thing to learn how to play the, the clarinet phenomenally, but there are reverberating effects and impacts of that music education that, that more people, you know, should and, and would care about. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of focus on, like, when people think about being an orchestra, like, well, I don't want to be a professional clarinet player. And, like, everyone's not going to be. And right. that's okay. Right. But the skills that you learn and, like, the development that happens, like, those skills are transferable. So, you know, d despite all of these challenges and how hard you work uh, throughout the school year, 
Um, that's not quite enough for you. You, you, you like to teach in, in, in the summer as well. Um, how about you talk to me uh, a little bit about the process of um, developing this, this uh, summer music camp that, that, that you're currently uh, in charge of? Yeah, so um, when I couldn't find work in North Carolina, someone from Oklahoma City reached out to me and said, hey, like, this school needs a band director. Would you be interested in, like, taking it, taking that position? And so it made me think about how in this school district, which is the one that I worked in when I first got back, uh, particularly, and we serve a lot of Title I students, low SES, um, and this school was on the east side of town, which is where, like, all of the black people live, mm -hmm. or a lot of black people live. Um, and I thought about the elementary schools and the middle schools and even the high schools and the lack of stability in their programs. Um, and it's like they have to keep starting over. Um, and then the ones who stay, they still are dealing with the challenges of not having enough resources and not having enough support. And uh, just like the difficulty that they're working through, but you know, the school district isn't a whole lot of help. And so I started thinking of what I could do to combat that that was outside of the system of, like, the school district so I wouldn't have to, like, you know, deal with those issues. Um, and so I decided, like, oh, I should create, like, a summer camp, Arts in Action. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I arrived at at creating creating Arts in Action. And right now it's a summer camp, but ideally it's a... When it's fully fleshed out, it'll be a program that runs the entire school year and the summer. Now, this summer won't be the first summer of Arts in Action, right? Right. How, 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 um, have, um, how have summer camps in the past gone? The first camp we had in 2018, um, we had like seven students, and we had a couple instrumentalists, a couple vocalists, and a pianist, and... It was like a really cool experience um, for them and for me just to be able to, like we taught them about black composers and about Arabic music and things that like they wouldn't learn about necessarily in school. Mm. Um, we gave them choice about what they wanted to learn to play for our performance. And um, I sort of on the spot like had them play an arrangement of Lift Every Voice and Sing, since we have like keyboard and singers and instrumentalists, uh, which is like a lot of them didn't know that song before. And parents talked about how they came home was like, Mom, we're learning this song called Lift Every Voice and it's cool. And, um, and so yeah, it was a really, really great experience to be able to expose them to all of these different things and to teach them in a way that was a little bit unorthodox. And who were these kids? I mean, did, did you target specific um, communities when, when it came to trying to get kids into, into the Arts in Action summer program? Um, those students were all, yeah, they were pretty much all students that I knew personally, mm. like some kids from church. I had one student come from the private school that I had taught at. Um, there was one student that came that, her mom was friends with my friend and saw that like I had shared the post or they had shared the post and inquired. But yeah, for the most part, it was like people in my circle. So, so um, what like has, one... so, so, so what was um, your sort of uh, technique as far as trying to grow this outside of uh, just your personal network? Yeah, that's sort of where I'm at right now. Um, 
because in thinking about like kind of back to school and preparation when they I think they talk about like all these things that you can do with a music degree one of them is run a camp but like we don't have conversations about how to market and how to get people to come to the camp and or even if you're going to teach lessons you know how you expand their network and so that's something that i'm learning right now because last year we didn't have the program for sort of the reason that you talked about in addition to the m word that has been tossed around uh several times money but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm learning now how to expand the network and how to get get people to know about the program, but also come and participate in the program. Are there people that you're able to reach out to? I mean, because I'm certainly not a marketing expert. You know, I mean, what 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 are you doing about the gap um, between you know your music education and the things that it takes to to pull off uh, arts in action every summer? Yeah, I have a couple of friends that do like marketing and social media stuff. And so I'm constantly talking to them about like ways that I can um, provide visibility. But all of them say like really the best, the best way to market yourself is to like face to face interaction. So like going to places and just being there. Um, but also like I am a church musician and so I've played at some churches that have like kids and then I talk to the pastor and say, hey, I have this program. And then that's another way that, you know, I make some connections. But I think that like the social media stuff is good. The marketing is good, but it has to be sort of this united front of all of these different avenues so that you can really um increase your visibility and get people to to know what you're doing. It sounds like this is something that needs to be taught in the music school. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what that looks like. I know that like in my undergrad, they had an arts like business class or something, uh, arts management, maybe it was. Um, but it was one class and it was for performers. And as a music ed major at that time, um, I had all of these other classes, so I couldn't, like, I didn't have time to fit in another class. And also at that time, I didn't, I wouldn't have even seen the value in that class because I'm going to be a teacher. Mm, right. But I definitely think that conversations like that, even as a composer, I was thinking about, like, I had to talk to one of my friends. He asked, well, Amari, do you have a marketing plan for, like, your composing brand? And I was like, well, no, because if I had one, you would have. Like, you would have come up with it. You <laughs> right. haven't told me anything. <laughs> um, but, yeah, as a composer, you know, we didn't have classes about, you know, this is these are ways that you can interact with people and get them to commission you or get them to play your music. And so, yeah, it's something that is definitely missing from the, the college curriculum for sure. And, and the, you know, the headache is, is that there are avenues um, – as far as, you know, getting support, you know, we met at uh, the Sphinx conference, you know, so so they yeah, definitely yeah. do a, a lot of that work, you know, getting people's ideas off the ground. But it's so competitive these days that it seems like ideas like yours have to be more fully fleshed out to really get that institutional support. I mean, it, it must be so frustrating for you to have dealt with you know, um, again, a gap in your education between, you know, the art and the um, execution of, of programs and, you know, you know, your inability to, to really have access to the people that can 
get you that support based on, you know, again, fleshing it out more more fully? Is, is that something you've spent much time thinking about? I mean, yeah, I've, I've experienced it. Yeah, <laughs> so, you've lived it. <laughs> yeah, when I was looking for grants and stuff, well, there are some organizations that they won't give you money until you've successfully run it on your own for three years. And I'm wow. like, well, if I could run it on my own for three years, I wouldn't really need like... You would run it on your own for 30 years. from you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so stuff like that. But even when other grants that I'm applying for, they want to know what my budget is. And I'm like, well, I haven't had a whole lot of goes at this. So I don't know like really what my budget is. So so because, you know, you weren't able to do it, uh, art, the Arts in Action Camp in uh, the summer of 2019, you know, you're going for it again um, this summer for, for 2020. With all yeah. of these with all of these challenges in mind, you know, people wanting to see fleshed out plans, budgets, and, and all that sort of thing, how, how are you approaching um, this summer differently to hopefully lead to a successful uh, summer of the Arts in Action summer camp? Yeah, I I organized the board like maybe in the winter of of eighteen. Um, but I feel like now I've really been able to engage them in a way that will provide like different results for this summer camp. Um and of course like sort of learning on the fly last year, like the things that didn't work, the things that did work. Uh, the previous year in capitalizing on that. And so I do feel a little, a lot more prepared. I um, started preparing earlier because that was another thing sort of like waiting until the last minute. Mm. And so like the promotion and stuff is all ready to go at this moment. Um, now it's just that, you know, the Rona might deter <laughs> Or cancel everything. Right, but. right. Again, as, as we're taping this, what about the money situation? Do you do you feel like you have the the dollars and cents together? So that's another thing that in my last board meeting I said, you know, I'm lately really passionate about access, and I realized that you know I'm providing this program um, in an area where there's levels of high or. A lot of people are experiencing like low SES. They don't have a lot of money. And so I'm providing this program that's really cool and I'm offering it at a discount of $200. But if you don't have $200, $200 is a lot of money. Right, absolutely. Um, and especially and so, as we move forward with, with this health crisis, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the people's pocketbooks are going to be getting tighter and tighter. Right. Um, and so I'm really going to spend a lot more time raising money. Um, I have like a benefit concert that I've planned and also a, sort of a marketing plan to reach out to different organizations and churches to partner with schools so that they can sponsor kids from like specific schools in their, their neighborhood or in their local area. Um, and applying for some of the grants that I, that I do qualify for. But yeah, that's going to be a major focus this year to make sure that money isn't one of the reasons why people can't come to the camp. I want to loop back around to, you know, you're saying that you feel like, um, you know, when you move from this Title I school um, back to, uh, you, you know, a, a more uh, affluent school, a, a more privileged, you know, district, um, you know, circling back around to that, how does that play a role in the Arts in Action 
summer camp? I mean, are, are you specifically looking for kids, you know, from those, you know, at-risk uh, communities to really participate uh, in your program? Yeah, that's like something that I've been going back and forth with, like in in reality, I just want kids to learn about mm. the arts. But I know like in this specific area um, that they don't get all of the exposure where like my kids, they can take art, they can take drama, choir, band, orchestra, archery, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but I know like in the community where I am targeting, they don't, they don't have all of those options. Mm. And so I'm not going to turn kids away to say, oh, like you come from this privileged area, you can't come. But I'm definitely targeting a population that doesn't have the access to all of the opportunities that others do. So what do you say to the parent who may or may not know your story of, you know, going through the music program and not really you know, having an idea of, of how it could turn into a profession. How, how do you tell those parents or, or those potential sponsors, look, this camp can serve them far beyond just learning the music skills? Excuse me. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to what we mentioned earlier, that you learn skills being a musician or participating in the arts that are transferable. You learn this discipline because when you have to learn this music for this test or for the concert like that's something you have to do on your own you learn self-regulation and self-control you learn how to be a leader you learn how to do group work you learn yeah just so many skills that transfer outside of being a musician that sounds like a pretty good pitch to me. <laughs> if, if, yeah. if, if there's someone listening right now, uh, either in Oklahoma or elsewhere, who, who wants to offer uh, their financial support, how can they do that? Uh, you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook account. It's Arts in Action, Inc. Or you can go to my website. It's simdesign.com. It's S-Y-M-D-E-S-I-G-N.com. And there's a little tab for Arts in Action, and you can donate there and um, see pictures and stuff that we did um, on the Facebook account as well. And I know we didn't really talk much about your uh, performing or, or your role as a composer, but is, is there anything on your writing desk that uh, you, you want to plug? Any, any, uh, anything coming up in that regard for you? Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to be writing a, well, I'm working on an orchestral piece, um, right now that, um, kind of deals with freedom and the idea of whether or not we're free. So using O Freedom, the spiritual as like thematic material, um, and then, I don't know if you, I think we maybe talked about this at Sphinx, the centennial uh, commemoration of the bombing of Black Wall Street is happening next oh, month. Oh, right, or, yeah. Sorry, next year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this weekend I was actually um, participating in this recording session where there may be 50, 60 artists and about 12 producers there going to make a hip-hop album about uh, Black Wall Street that will be released next year. But um, so I played violin on a lot of those tracks. And then also thinking about things that I can do to celebrate or commemorate 
uh, Black Wall Street as well. So yeah, and and we definitely need way more attention put on that bit of history because it's only you know been recently since you know it's been a a, a broad bit of understanding of American history. You know, much much less yeah. you know even within uh, certain communities. Wow, um, you know you're you're mentioning um, the piece of music based on the uh, the freedom uh, spiritual. You know, uh, really brings me to my uh, last question. You know, a lot of folks. These days, again, with this health scare, are not feeling free. You know, kids are at home. Parents are trying to find ways to make sure their kids are taken care of while they're at home. Maybe they go to work, even if they stay at home, you know, engage in a house full of kids um, and making sure that, you know, their minds are being stimulated must be such a challenge for so many people. Um, For any parents who have kids at home, um, that 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 they, that they need to keep busy uh, throughout the day. How would you um, suggest that they do that musically? How how can a parent um, impact their child's perspective on music, their music education during times like these? Yeah, I think that yeah, that's going to be really important. There are videos on YouTube that you can find. I think also like if you have a younger child. Um, Call and response is always a good thing and something that doesn't take a lot of experience. You just do something and then have the kid repeat after you. You can stomp, you can clap or do combinations of things that make sounds. Um, and then also let the student, you know, lead and then you you call back to them and repeat the things that they do. Um, you could make an instrument. There are different videos and things, tutorials that can walk you through the steps to make like a drum using maybe a cup and like paper and a rubber band or something like plastic wrap and a rubber band, a rubber band around it. Um, and listening to music is always good. Having conversations about what the music makes them feel or what maybe they um, like ascribing an emotion that they feel goes along with the different types of music that you play. And then there are several orchestras that have like sites for kids. I know the Dallas Symphony has a pretty good website that's interactive that kids can listen to stuff and create things. Um, and there are a couple other orchestras that have similar things that I can't remember off the top of my head. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, the, the, the pathway um, in music education may seem really rigid, but the, the way you can apply that in your home is sounds uh, very diverse. So, so many different yeah. things that, uh, that parents can do to engage um, their kids. Um, Amari, I, I really uh, appreciate your, uh, your sitting with me um, in the uh, description uh, of this uh, opus of Triloquy. I'll be sure to uh, make sure there's a link to your website there. I hope everyone listening uh, will pay them a visit and also uh, uh, throw Amare a, a few dollars to help Arts in Action become a thing uh, for the summer of 2020. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing your story with me. Thanks for having me, Garrett. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, next time you see uh, your mom, Irma, tell her, I, uh, tell her the folks up here at American Public Media say hey. I will. Really great to uh, talk to Mr. Amari Ford, named after his mother Irma. I, I, I thought that's pretty uh, clever. What, what did you think about that? That that sort of made it's me touching. That made me smile. It was sweet.
Yeah, it, it is sweet. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this opus, um, that music camp, you know, due to uh, COVID-19 has been, uh, I'll say postponed until next summer. So I really encourage you to uh, take a look at his website. You can find it in the uh, description um, of this opus and and make a contribution if, if you can. Now. All right. All right, Scott. So uh, take it away. <laughs> we got some big news, big news. Uh, I, I, I don't know. How do you want to bust it out? Well, so this is the thing. So with, um, you know, COVID-19, many organizations have had to shift things around and, and figure out, you know, what has to stay and, and, and what sacrifices um, have to be made. And um, American public media um, has chosen to um, hand Triloquy over to Scott and myself as a completely independent project and um I don't know, Scott. I'm I'm excited by that. There's all sorts of mixed emotions, but I have to look down the line and just go. You know, the trade-off is going to be uh, more creativity. I think with with fewer guardrails that we had to follow, I think that we're going to be able to bring more and better content that I think that that people will be interested in. That's what I'm looking forward to. And we'll go into this a little bit more in the first episode of season two of Triloquy, but I want to lay it out here that it's not about American public media deciding that, you know, they just don't want to carry us anymore. It's not that Triloquy was canceled as much as it's American public media doing what it could to make sure that this project could continue. You know, there are all sorts of legal things behind the scenes, you know, the logo, the fact that Triloquy is a copyrighted brand, you know, right, by, the, by the United States. And um, and all of that has been offered to us by American public media at a very equitable price. So I really want to um, shout them out, shout out our general manager, um, Brian Newhouse, for, for really leading the way and helping uh, Triloquy um, become uh, an, a, an independent project um, moving forward. Um, again, I, I'm excited right right now that there's some bright things coming. Um, yeah, so be on the lookout for some video. We're going to be doing more video projects for you to uh, augment the audio that you get through podcasts. Uh, I think that the uh, diversification of, of guests is going to just explode. And uh, also, we're dropping the whole uh, stories from the fringes of classical music. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be even um, bigger than that. So as we, you know, transition uh, onto our own platforms, you know, rebuild our website, it's going to take a little bit of time. So Scott and I are going to um, take a couple weeks off from bringing you opuses of Triloquy. We will come back with a very special um, guest co-host. I won't just say a guest, but a, a guest co-host for the uh, first uh, for for episode one of season two of uh, Triloquy. I just want to personally thank every single person who has um, stuck with us. You know, through these what I guess fifty um, opuses of Triloquy. Yeah, you know, weeks. Yeah, I, you know, as I think back to some of our guests, and you know, in, in an effort not to leave anyone out, I won't name any um, particular names um, except for one, uh, Marion Dooley, who helped us get this whole thing going. You know, his experience in the concert hall, seeing me there, wanting to make that connection, you know, it, it gave birth to so many more conversations that have had an impact on institutions across the Twin Cities, across the country, and and even around the world through some 
of the um, connections we've made. So I just want to send a special shout out to Marion Dooley, a special shout out to everyone who is a guest on Triloquy, everyone who's been an engineer on this. A uh, special shout out to James Napoli for being our go-to guy um, on the Say digital side. Seiji for for uh, getting us started, you know, back in those early days. Shout out to him, um, and and Scott, you know, just a, a huge thanks to you. You know, this is a a journey that I've been on for many years now, and for you to join me in this iteration of it and to continue to uh, be a partner as uh, as Triloquy moves forward, it really means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. Oh man, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad to. And this is um, it, it's good work. It's work that I believe in. I'm learning stuff all the time, as you can attest to. And uh, you've been you've been gracious with patience. So uh, that that would be my suggestion to everybody who's listened so far. Try to find try to find your Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we used to describe ourselves as uh, maybe Batman and Alfred, not much so much uh, Batman and Robin. But I, I, I think we're 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 hitting closer these days to the Robin Hood and and Little John. You know, Robin the proverbial rich and and giving it to the proverbial poor. I, I'm 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 ready to be a, a, a even more badass bandit <laughs> of classical music. So and and the arts in general. Um, yeah. So again, thank you to everyone who stuck with us. We're going to take a couple week break and uh, we will return with you for uh, the first opus of season two of Triloquy. So um, until then, happy listening to music and uh, keep fighting the good fight out there. Bye.